Hello everyone, I'm Paris Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership with Tom Fox, hosted by Richard Lummis. This is Tom Fox. This begins a special three-part episode that Richard Lummis and I do on President Harry Truman, General Douglas MacArthur, and Truman's sacking of MacArthur during the Korean War. We take a look at the leadership lessons from both MacArthur and Truman, and then what happened that led to MacArthur's sacking by Truman, and what lessons today's business leader can draw from this. It's a fascinating exploration of a significant point in U.S. history. I hope you enjoy it. Hello, and welcome to another episode of 12 O'Clock High, a podcast about leadership. This is Richard Lummis, and I'm here with Tom Fox for another discussion on how to improve our leadership skills. We believe leadership is a skill which can be improved with study of both good and bad practices. And we try to draw interesting examples from many sources, including history, fiction, film, and business writing. Welcome back, Tom. Thank you, Richard. Today, we're going to discuss one of the most famous generals in American history, Douglas MacArthur. Born in 1880, he was raised in a military family. In 1903, he graduated first in his class from West Point. During the 1914 U.S. occupation of Veracruz, he was nominated for the Congressional Medal of Honor. On the Western Front in World War I, he rose to the rank of Brigadier General, was again nominated for a Medal of Honor, and was awarded the Distinguished Service Cross twice and the Silver Star seven times. He next served as Superintendent of West Point prior to being assigned to the Philippines. In 1925, he became the Army's youngest Major General. In 1930, he became Chief of Staff of the United States Army. He retired from the Army in 1937 to become military advisor to the government of the Philippines and was recalled to active duty in 1941. He then presided over an absolutely disastrous campaign before escaping to Australia with some of his staff. He was named Supreme Commander Southwest Pacific Area and eventually, rather controversially, awarded the Medal of Honor for his performance in the defense of the Philippines. After commanding the island-hopping campaign in the Pacific, he accepted the Japanese surrender in September 1945 and effectively served as proconsul of Japan until 1951. At the start of the Korean War, he headed the United Nations forces and oversaw the dramatically successful Incheon amphibious landing. When he drove the North Korean forces back towards the Yalu River, he disastrously misjudged the Red Chinese response. When hundreds of thousands of Chinese crossed the border, the UN forces were forced on a lengthy retreat that was only stabilized when Matthew Ridgway took command of the 8th Army and restored morale. After a series of publicized statements by MacArthur criticizing the direction of the war, and especially the willingness of Truman to accept the status quo antebellum rather than committing to all-out war with the Chinese, Truman removed him from command. The decision was hugely unpopular, and MacArthur was given a hero's welcome on his return to the States and allowed to address a joint session of Congress. There he made his famous old soldiers never die, they just fade away speech, and then embarked on a speaking tour. Initially drawing huge crowds and demands that he run for president, his appeal faded fairly quickly. Tom, where do you want to start on this very interesting man's career? So I'd like to start with uh, actually William Manchester's biography of MacArthur, which I read in high school. And uh, up until that time, my views on MacArthur were informed by my father, who had served in the Pacific in World War II. And the views of my father are, <clears throat> were, I should say, somewhat antithetical to what we are going to talk about now uh, in this podcast because my father's views 
were that he was dugout dug. He stayed in a dugout. Uh, not to say he was a coward, but um, I would say when my father called him that, it was not out of love, affection, and respect. And so when I read um, Manchester's book, which I believe was called American Caesar, uh, I had to have a radical reevaluation of MacArthur as a military leader because at some points in his career, his tactics were absolutely brilliant. Uh, I think a, a level above even some of the top planning um, of, of American staff work. Sometimes uh, in the defense of the Philippines you mentioned, and particularly uh, Corregidor, uh, it was uh, worse than abysmal. Um, so, um, and the Korean War towards the end of the Yalu River may have tend, trended towards that direction. So uh, there were, but there were flashes of brilliance. And the other thing I was completely unaware of was his role in the reconstruction of Japan. After he accepted the surrender of Japan, and when I say he accepted it, I mean he accepted it, uh, he literally sat down and wrote the constitution uh, that formed modern Japan. The decisions uh, he, uh, if not made, he at least influenced to not prosecute the emperor as a war criminal. Uh, turned out to be an absolute brilliant decision for the culture of Japan because of the respect the Japanese people had for the emperor at that time, worshiping him uh, as if he was a god. And uh, persuading the emperor to step down from the god role to just becoming a man. Now, that man was still the emperor. He still uh, garnered huge respect. But I think it was largely MacArthur and his influence uh, with the emperor. And his uh, role in, uh, from, I believe you said, uh, the end of the war to 1951, uh, in uh, re reconstituting and reconstructing Japan led to the Japanese economic miracle, led to Japan being, uh, at least perhaps until the current administration, uh, a good ally of the United States and a steadfast ally. So there were parts of his life and parts of his career that uh, shone greatly much more than my father's derisive statement of Doug out Doug. Well, he certainly was a hugely polarizing figure. Um, the soldiers tended to either idolize him or despise him. And uh, I think that was true. Well, that was true certainly in his later career. Yeah, I think he, he was a man of unquestionable physical courage in World War I, which is why his behavior in Corregidor is so kind of baffling to me. Um, but he was a man of huge vanity. Um, one, of the, one of the quotes I, I ran across that I liked was a, a British field marshal who once said, the best and the worst things you ever hear about him are both true. Uh, but in, in researching for this podcast, at least my research was not really around his brilliance, I, but I must emphasize he did have brilliant moments, certainly as a military commander uh, and as political uh, commander in Japan. But it was really about his leadership style. And this really was a revelation to me, Richard, uh, because uh, having read the Manchester biography, I think I was overawed by his moments of brilliance. And I had incorrectly, uh, the lessons I learned were incorrect, that it was his true brilliance uh, that allowed him to make the decisions he made. Whereas uh, when you take a look a, a little bit more granularly at his leadership style, um, although incorporating uh, certainly the, the vanity and the other perhaps negative aspects you highlighted, there were a good number of points that uh, are absolutely applicable to 
the modern business business leader, in addition to a, a military or political leader. And uh, Victor Lippmann, writing in Forbes, listed out, I think, 19 principles for leadership. And, and I would like to read these because some of these uh, are not may not be new to our listeners, but they are uh, framed in a way that I, I would like to explore with you. It's number one, do I heckle my subordinates or strengthen and encourage them? Two, do I use moral courage in getting rid of subordinates who have proven themselves beyond doubt to be unfit? Three, have I done all in my power by encouragement, incentive, and spur to salvage the weak and the erring? Four, do I know the name and character a max of a maximum number of subordinates for whom I am responsible? Do I know them intimately? Five, am I thoroughly familiar with the techniques, necessities, objectives, and administration of my job? Six, do I lose my temper at individuals? Seven, do I act in a way, <coughs> uh, such a way to make my subordinates want to follow me? Eight, do I delegate tasks that should be not mine? Nine, do I arrogate myself to uh, everything to myself and delegate nothing? Ten, do I develop uh, my subordinates by placing on each one as much responsibility as he can stand? Uh, Eleven, uh, am I interested in the personal welfare of each of my subordinates as if he were a member of my family? Twelve, have uh, the calmness of voice and manner to inspire confidence or I'm inclined to irascibility? And excitability. So are you irascible, Richard? Uh, Thirteen, am I, am I a constant example to my subordinates in character, dress, deportment, and courtesy? Uh, I'm not quite sure what number I'm on, so we'll just go to the next number. Fourteen, am I inclined to be nice to my superiors and mean to my subordinates? Fifteen, is my door open to subordinates? Sixteen, do I think more of position than job? Seventeen, uh, do I correct a subordinate in the presence of others? So it was a list of 17, but uh, I guess the thing that struck me in this list, Richard, was obviously listening was an important part, but it was also treating people with respect. Uh, and it was not simply the respect that uh, perhaps you would give a subordinate. It was respecting your superiors, but also the respect of comporting yourself uh, in a manner uh, that inspired others uh, to act at the same. And um, perhaps not as important in 2019 than when you and I started practicing law. He even mentioned dress. And I think dressing professionally uh, for me is still an important uh, uh, characteristic. And frankly, when I, when I see someone in a leadership position dressed appropriately, um, uh, it gives me a, a higher level of confidence. Well, MacArthur, I think, may have taken it to extremes. Um, he was famous for designing his own uniforms, and some of them looked like they almost came out of a comic opera um, of what a general should be wearing. But his deportment was always something he was, he was very keenly aware of. He was extraordinarily interested in his image, and he was fantastic at PR and controlling that image. Um, I think later in his career, he, he surrounded himself with, uh, with a poor staff of mainly sycophants um, who were more interested in flattering him than, uh, than performing. But at some point, he obviously had a good staff. Uh, absolutely. Uh, a couple of other points. Uh, do I arrogate everything to myself and delegate nothing? Uh, clearly, you can't do everything. Um, as the commander-in-chief of U.S. services or U.S. forces in the southwestern Pacific, at least for the Army, uh, he did have to delegate, and the staff that he had at that point, uh, Manchester really talked about that, but it was also um, 
at that point in the history of America, it really was the best of the best in uh, the Army, in the Navy, in the uh, U.S. Army Air Corps, and in the Marines. Obviously, the, the war effort led that, but uh, having that sort of talent pool uh, is something that many CEOs have available to them. So as CEO, do you really bring in um, the best of the best to surround yourself uh, with to move your corporation forward? And, and although we have talked about uh, that to some extent in this podcast series, I don't think we've challenged uh, any leaders to really think about not just talent acquisition, but the best, the best for each role and how much input and, and insight have you given around your key ELT or executive leadership team or those who report to you or those who have to, to really execute the decisions you might uh, make. Well, and I thought what the first three were very interesting and then one of the second one was, was also interesting because he talks about how you need to encourage and build your your subordinates. But at the same time, if you have one who has proven themselves beyond doubt to be unfit, you have to remove them. Um, and at, then he also talks about heckling them and basically never correcting them in the presence of others. Um, just never try to humiliate someone. That's, that's just a very poor form of leadership. But I thought that the the emphasis he placed on building um, the competence of your subordinates was was interesting. So in another uh, article I read uh, about, um, in preparation rather for this podcast, it said that as a military leader, MacArthur walked the walk. And he cited a quote from MacArthur, a true leader has the confidence to stand alone, the courage to make tough decisions, the compassion to listen to the needs of others. He does not set out to be a leader, but becomes one by the equality by the equality of his actions and the integrity of his intent. And rarely do we talk about the equality of one's actions and the integrity of his intent, except to the extent you just talked about that. And you talked about the equality of action in, uh, I thought, or at least it came, it meant to me the equality of one's actions in really trying to make your subordinates uh, better, uh, nurturing them, I'm not sure uh, to the extent uh, as if they were a member of your family. Nevertheless, that was important for, enough for MacArthur. What about the calmness of your voice? Does that uh, ex- exude uh, inspiration? <clears throat> you rarely hear, fortunately, of a CEO of a U.S. public company or a Fortune 100 company who uh, cusses people out in public. That's not unheard of. Uh, but the calmness of voice is a manner that can inspire people. Uh, perhaps that's to the deportment comments that uh, you made earlier, but it's also, I think, a quality of leadership. Well, it's also to the not losing your temper aspect and, and yelling at people. It's, uh, again, those are counterproductive. The, one of the other articles we looked at uh, quoted Patton on, um, on the issue of taking responsibility and giving credit. I'm not sure MacArthur was great at giving credit to others, but he said, officers who fail to correct errors or to praise excellence are valueless in peace and dangerous misfits in war. Um, so again, it's uh, it's the twofold role. And you know, you're right. We have actually discussed several uh, CEOs who are known to yell at people and quite profanely, but uh, we were tending to use them not as examples to follow. Richard, I guess the thing that uh, I learned from this exploration of MacArthur as a leader uh, was that there, um, many of the decisions he made that I had thought were simply flashes of, of brilliant insight 
were based upon uh, a lot of the leadership principles that we have discussed through this podcast series. And there are specific steps uh, that you can take. And, and if I could go back to literally our first podcast, where we both, uh, certainly you, uh, articulated it quite well in uh, thinking that you're really born as a leader and that the, there's really no way, unless you have the leadership gene, uh, to, to become a great leader. And <clears throat> even if, and MacArthur was a genius, he had the second highest score at West Point after Robert E. Lee in the history of West Point, um, he did have specific steps that he used as a leader to foster a culture of leadership, to foster a culture of people who wanted to uh, to work for him. But he took their advice and he took their input and he leaned upon them to execute the decisions that he made. And that as brilliant as he was as a military commander, it was his leadership skills, particularly in World War II, uh, that led to uh, the great achievements that uh, America had in that theater. Well, I think that's right. And I think one of the things that struck me is MacArthur made a lifetime study of his career, of military history, tactics, strategy. He was he was always studying for his entire life to focus on how he could do it better. And he did see his job as being a great leader. And so he studied how to do that well, which is kind of what we're trying to do with this podcast, if not to the extent of becoming MacArthur's. He was involved in, I think, something like 20 major military campaigns by his count. And we've talked about two that he he failed in with the uh, Bataan Corregidor and the arguably the second half of his Korean campaign. Um, I think one of the things that happened to him is he became somewhat blinded um, and saw success as solely a matter of military victory. Um, he rather famously proposed to nuke the Chinese and then sew a belt of radioactive cobalt across the Yalu River to prevent them from reinforcing. Uh, Truman, I think, correctly thought that was insane. Um, but it probably was the only way to win that war. And so MacArthur saw things in that particular case as his job was to win the war, exclusive of outside considerations. So I don't know what you think about that. Um, did he actually become blind? I think he did become blind, but uh, I think he was also blind to his uh, saber-rattling uh, inciting the Chinese. And that incitement of the Chinese, of course, led to the rupture of the uh, United Nations line when they invaded with 330,000, quote, volunteers, end quote, to, uh, into North Korea. But uh, if, if he had taken perhaps a less public tact, um, perhaps the Chinese would have not invaded. Perhaps he would have been able to, to, to stop at the Yali River. What has never been clear to me is, uh, was he going to stop at the Yalu River? And uh, if he was going to stop at the Yalu River and that was his military objective and he was going to defend that territorial boundary, uh, I think, well, that would have been a, a more palatable decision than if he was going to invade uh, <clears throat> mainland China at that time, which I don't think uh, the American public uh, had the appetite for. Well, I think he had uh, an unreasonably high uh, opinion of Chiang Kai-shek and his army. Um, he, w he was proposing to use them uh, in order to defeat the Chinese. 
And uh, given that they had just fought the communist Chinese and been driven to Taiwan, it seems to me to be a, a very puzzling decision on his part. But again, throughout most of his career, uh, one of the figures is that he earned over 100 military decorations during his career. So uh, this is a man whose career, while marked with some rather startling blemishes, was outstanding. Uh, it certainly was. He was a, was and is a fascinating figure to study. I enjoyed uh, researching for this podcast, and I cannot uh, recommend uh, Manchester's book uh, any more highly. So uh, if you want to see about his some of his military feats, <clears throat> his uh, professional background, his family, what he did in the interwar years, and a couple of other uh, sordid tales that we uh, won't get into in this podcast, uh, check out the Manchester book. Yeah, I highly recommend pretty much everything Manchester wrote. Uh, but yes, with respect to MacArthur, American Caesar is, is outstanding, if somewhat, I think, uh, Hygeographic, maybe. All right, well, from for now, this is Richard Lummis and Tom Fox at 12 o'clock high. Hope to have you next time. Have you listen next time. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you will join Richard Lummis and I when we take a look at Truman's firing of MacArthur during the Korean conflict in part three of our three part exploration of leadership lessons from President Harry Truman, General Douglas MacArthur and the termination of MacArthur's command by Truman. I know you will enjoy it. Thank you. This is Paris Fox again. We hope you enjoyed this episode of 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership with Tom Fox. If you enjoyed the show, please go to iTunes and rate the podcast. Thank you for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.